Welcome. Watching Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer was an odd experience. The stage is set for an epic. Some of the greatest minds in the world gather in one place with a crucial mission to create a new weapon that will bring an end to the war against Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, two of the worst regimes the world has ever seen. The mission succeeds, the bomb is created, the war is won. But then we see Robert Oppenheimer, the mastermind behind the creation of the bomb, being overwhelmed, not by pride for bringing the end of the world, but being overwhelmed by guilt and by doubt. He's haunted by the idea that he has blood in his hands. And the movie brings back a discussion that never really went away. And the question whether the dropping of the bombs on Japan was justified, or maybe whether it was unnecessary and thus a war crime. This is the question that we will deal with today in New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. With me is my colleague, Ben Bayer. So Ben, you watch the film. It looks like the idea that the dropping of the bombs was not really necessary is the most prevalent view, at least among the people who created the film, but also it's a view that has many advocates in the world out there. Yes, it's a, it's a view that I think has been circulating for decades now, uh, especially among leftist critics of American foreign policy, people of the uh, Noam Chomsky, Howard Zinn variety. And it's become increasingly popular among certain kinds of revisionist historians. Uh, the, the interesting thing I find about these theories, and we're going to start by talking about some of the historical aspects of this question and get into the philosophy in the second half, is that when you, it's, it's not as though they've uncovered some uh, dramatic, uh, uh, shocking facts of history that people would never have guessed were true. And it's not that the facts really change anything. I think you can accept all of their, all of the most uncontroversial facts that they, that they describe. And it's a question of what is the moral framework you adopt in evaluating those facts. And so we'll start to bring some of that out when we look at some of these historical facts. Uh, but then we're going to we're going to focus on the moral framework squarely uh, in the second half of the episode. So let's start with this one, Nikos. Uh, one that you often hear from these sorts is that it wasn't really uh, the bomb that convinced Japan to surrender anyway. Uh, it was the Soviet entry into the war. And since the Soviets were going to enter the war, the, Stalin had promised to do this to uh, for Truman at Potsdam. Uh, that's why the bomb wasn't necessary. What do you think? Yes. Well, the people who claim this need to bring some proof of that. So let's just see the timeline. On So notice, of course, that the people who claim that the war ended because the Soviets entered the war are the same people, often, who are telling us that the Japanese were ready to surrender anyway. So what was it? They were ready to surrender or they decided to surrender because the Soviets entered the war. So here's the timeline. On the 7th of August, we have the first the drop of the first bomb in Hiroshima. Then the next day, Soviet Union starts attacking, to put it very generally, towards the islands on the north of Japan. So not the mainland, Japan. Japan does not surrender. 
Next day, two days after 9th of August, we have the dropping of the bomb in Nagasaki. And still, it takes till the midnight of that night for the emperor to be convinced, actually for the emperor to convince the war council to surrender. So some people might get confused with this. Who was in charge in Japan? Well, the, the most iconic figure was the emperor, but the people in charge of the war was the war council, six people in the war council who still after the dropping of the bomb in Nagasaki could not agree how they will communicate that they were defeated. So after Nagasaki, they understand that they have been defeated. The war minister did not believe that the Amer initially did not believe that the Americans had the atomic bomb. Then after the bomb in Hiroshima, he thinks that they had only one bomb. And after Nagasaki, he realized, okay, we're done. So he agrees to the surrender and predictably for the, moral for the morality of Japanese uh, uh, officers, then he commits a ritual suicide. So if we see the timeline, what proves the most significant fact was the understanding that the United States could throw more bombs to the Japanese. Actually, they interrogated a captive pilot who told them out, out of duress, probably torture, because he just wanted to tell them what would make him leave. He told them that the United States have 100 bombs, which was not true at the time. But the Japanese believed this. And this was a crucial point in terms of deciding to. So the people who claim that they, the Japanese surrendered because of the Soviet attack need to explain us why were the Japanese actually eager to invite the Americans to a land attack in Japan, to a last stand where they were planning to die till the last, not the last soldier, till the last civilian. But then supposedly when they saw that the Soviets would attack, then they said, okay, now we surrender. So this is something that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense knowing what was the ethos of the Japanese military, that we will die till the last one, but we will take as many of our enemies with us. And they do not understand that it was the bombs and not the possibility of an invasion. The Japanese knew they would be invaded. They knew the, they've been known this for months and they had plans on how to defend an invasion. Probably it wouldn't be a successful defense. Probably it would be like a kamikaze style suicide mission, but they were okay with that. What they were not okay with is being uh, bombed with more nuclear bombs because they realized that this was a death that it wasn't even like a glorious death like the one they expected to have. I think we should dig in a little more to what you just said about the ethos of uh, of the Japanese military in this period, because that's that's relevant to the next theory that you often hear. And again, part of the reason this is important to discuss up front, the historical aspect, is that the critics are saying the bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki killed tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, of people, many of them civilians. If there was a way to avoid that, uh, it seems like it would have been preferable. We'll get to their motives for thinking that later. But uh, one of the other the theories is related to this one, the, is the more general version of the, of the one we just talked about, is that there were a variety of reasons to think they were going to surrender anyway. There was a peace faction uh, within the Japanese War Council. Uh, and so why didn't we let them why didn't we let them continue to sue for, for peace within that framework? 
and Nikos, I think understanding something about the way that council worked and something about the ethos of the military culture in Japan that had started this war is important here. So we're talking here about the collectivist society, but when we say collectivist, we mean like real collectivist. So the idea was that you can have almost every Japanese individual dying, but then Japan would still live because Japan was an idea above every individual. This is why they thought that it was okay to have this last stand. This is why we've seen that in battles leading to what would be the end of the war, the war, the battles in Okinawa, for example, the battle in a small island called Iwo Jima, we saw there Japanese losing something like 90% of their forces. This is something that is almost unprecedented on that scale. So it was perfectly fine for them the idea that you can have a glorious Japan, literally without Japanese, with all the Japanese dead. Because again, what is important is the idea of the nation. And the idea of the nation is above any and every individual. So people who judge Japan with the criteria that you would judge a country that says, well, I've lost the war, therefore there is no hope, are mistaken. Did Had Japan, by the time we had dropped the bombs, already lost the war? The answer is yes. But this is something completely different from the claim that they were ready to surrender because it was perfectly fine for Japan's, for Imperial Japan ideology to accept that, yes, we have lost the war, and at the same time to say, we will die till the last person. Actually, part of the plan was to give to literally young kids sticks because all the guns would be given to people who could carry them and tell them just to go like, like a human wave attack, if you know from history, just overwhelm the opponent, just literally attack them with sticks. So yes, Japan had lost. No, Japan was not ready to surrender. How do we know? By the fact that they actually did not surrender. Yeah, the, the fact that they didn't actually is, is the, uh, the, the major historical fact that gets glossed over in all of these discussions. And, and just to reinforce a, a point from before, this ideology that you just described uh, this extreme collectivist self-sacrificial ideology. I, I don't think Americans today appreciate how fully indoctrinated Japanese citizens were into it. It had been a, a product of decades and decades of a sustained campaign by the Japanese government, which controlled all educational institutions uh, to inculcate this into the citizenry. And the, the, the faction on the war council that was... Uh, opposing the ones who wanted to sue for peace was fully steeped in it. Uh, so it's true there was a peace faction. They wanted to negotiate. They wanted to go through the Soviets to negotiate some kind of peace and give up. But they were simply overruled. Uh, and and that hap that's exactly what you should expect when uh, the entire culture has been saturated with this ideology. Um, and let's this, make something think, clear here. When we talk about right. the peace fraction, people might think like United States in the 60s, there was like a peace movement, people protesting, nothing like that. We're talking about some hardcore nationalists who have realized that they have lost and they try to see if there is a way to maintain something, maybe maintain the emperor, maybe maintain something that would be a, a remainder of this uh, of the Imperial Japan 
and its ideology. So don't don't think that there was like massive mobilization or people petitioning the emperor and saying uh, we should end that or any remorse. Why did we do all these crimes for the last uh, 10 years or, or so? Now, here we start to get into aspects of the revisionist theories that I think are going to bring out some of the philosophical differences, uh, because one of them is is that, well, Hiroshima and Nagasaki weren't even military targets. Uh, and so why did we why did we bomb them? Didn't serve a military purpose. And by the way, anyway, uh, many of the generals in this period think that Japan was militarily defeated anyway. So why was it necessary? Thoughts on these, Nikos? Okay. So the idea. So we've already covered the stuff that uh, Japan was already defeated. So why wh why go with the option of the nuclear weapons? Well, the question then is what is the alternative? And there would be two alternatives. The one worse than the other, depending on how you you view it. The first alternative would see just to wait. Would be just to wait. There was a naval blockade around Japan. So the plan would be, let, let the famine take its course. Let Japan exhaust itself. So instead of attacking them, we'll let them starve. And when they starve, they will actually, they will actually surrender. This doesn't take some things into accordance. First of all, when would that starvation come? After two months, after three months, after five months? Every month that passed, there were tens of thousands of prisoners of war, allied prisoners of war, that suffered unspeakable, toward, uh, unspeakable conditions in the hands of the Japanese. That's one thing to take into accordance. So people who say we should wait, they need to answer the question, why should the allied prisoners of war who did not start the war suffer instead of the Japanese civilians or those who are innocent, we will see how many were innocent, whether they were innocent. But why should the prisoners of war suffer rather than the Japanese? That's the first issue. A second issue, which hasn't got directly to do with the interests of the United States, is how every month where the war would continue, what would be the impact on the subjects in Asia that were under Japanese occupation? We are talking about 100,000 to 250,000 people dying every month. These are innocent people in various islands in the Pacific, in, uh, in what today we call in, in, in China, and they were dying en masse, again, by a, a regime of unspeakable cruelty. And there's a third issue here. The more you delay the defeat of a dangerous opponent, you put yourself into risks that you cannot even calculate. Let me give you an example. The Japanese had a biological warfare program. How this program was developed, I encourage people not to check it out if they, have a, if they haven't got a strong stomach. If you do have a strong stomach, go and check Unit 731. And... But don't do it before you go to bed at night. It's not going to be pleasant. So we know that the Japanese had a biological warfare program ready to unleash via kamikaze or via submarines to the West Coast. Now, and actually this even had a, this even had a name, which was uh, the, the actual translation would be something like uh, the, the, the Blossom uh, Cherry. Anyway, may, maybe I didn't translate it well. But the question is, 
what type of risk are you ready to take when it comes to a biological warfare being unleashed by the Japanese? Maybe it was only 5% that it would succeed, but would you take that risk? Maybe it was 10% that it would succeed. Why would you take that risk and risk your, your population having bubonic plague unleashed on itself? And in order to save and to protect the Japanese civilians, again, Japan started this war. So delaying the war would be an act of self either self-sacrifice when it comes to your prisoners of war and potentially to your population, again, because we don't know what the Japanese would do with their biological warfare program, but also hundreds of thousands of innocents in the occupied territories, the territories occupied the Japanese would find a horrible, would find a horrible, uh, a horrible death. By the way, the biological warfare operation was called Operation Cherry Blossoms at Night. So again, if people have a strong stomach, they can check online how this operation and how the biological warfare program of the Japanese came around. But again, it's not for the faint of heart. So one of the things I think that your answer brings out is that, and we're going to talk about this more shortly, is that if you are coming from the perspective that the purpose of fighting a war is to defeat the enemy and to defend your homeland and your own citizens, uh, then, then waiting for them to surrender, even though they're defeated, is nonsensical and atrocious. And I think that's especially the case if you think about, okay, it's true, that at this point in the war, the Japanese are, are not going to win. They are, from a military perspective, defeated. So the generals who said that were not wrong. Uh, but at the same time, to consider two factors. One, the material we already discussed about the ideology of the Japanese and how they were willing to fight even though they were defeated. But two, the important issue of the distinction between defeat and surrender. And that it's one thing to be defeated, it's another thing to acknowledge it, which is what surrender is. Acknowledging it is what signals to the world you're not going to fight to the death. It's what signals to the world you're not going to continue to harbor grievances and start another war uh, 20 years later like the Germans did after World War I. It's not just an issue of getting closure. It's a recognition of the fact that aggressors in war are, it's, I mean, it's, it's irrational to be a militaristic conqueror in the first place. They're propelled by an irrational ideology. They're propelled by an irrational assumption about what they can achieve with militarism. It's irrationality all along that's been propelling them because of their power to evade the facts. An aggressor in that kind of situation needs to be humiliated. They need to be utterly humiliated. Their will needs to be broken. Uh, and that's the, only, that's the only thing that can make most of the aggressors unable to continue evading the facts around them. And this, is, this was true for most of the, the Japanese population. They were, they were fed constant propaganda saying that their, their military was still advancing overseas, even when they, their navy had been sunk. Uh, it was only the admission of the emperor uh, on the radio for the first time hearing his voice 
that that they realized they had been lied to. They could no longer continue to evade. Their leaders could no longer continue to evade. And the ones that wanted to still would go ahead and, and commit uh, ritual suicide. And so this is the importance of forcing surrender on unconditional terms. And one last point to add here is that all of the uncertainties that you mentioned, Nikos, about uh, the biological warfare and would they continue to fight? And so even though retrospectively, we know historically that their military was defeated, all of these uncertainties were still very much on the mind of the generals and the political leadership in the United States at the time. And historians still debate exactly which factor was more predominant in, in uh, convincing the Japanese to surrender. If the historians now, with the benefit of 80 years of history, still debate about this, you can bet that it was uncertain to the leaders at the time. They, didn't, they knew they were facing huge question marks, huge possible threats. They had to make a decision, and they had to do it in a way that continued to protect American citizens. And that's one of the next things we're going to talk about. But you wanted to add something. And some of the arguments, Ben, have more to do with people's moral, with dissenters or revisionist moral code rather than with a military reality. One big example, Admiral Leahy, a person who was very central and very close to Truman. So when Truman comes to power after FDR dies around April, he brings his top military people, including Admiral Leahy, and ask them one question, when will Japan be defeated? And they give him a time frame of 18 months, 18 months, more than a year. And at some point he asks Admiral Leahy, how many people would we lose in the case of a land invasion? And Leahy is too worried to give him the actual number. So he plays games with numbers. He says, well, if we, give, if we put three quarter of a million soldiers, expect 30% of them to die during the opening stages of the invasion. To put this simple, the lowest estimate, the lowest estimate for a land invasion of Japan would include the loss of a quarter of a million American soldiers. In my opinion, as a, having done the research, I'm not an expert, but my opinion is that this is a massively under, under, on the very low end number. Again, think how many people the United States lost in, this, in very small islands or in Okinawa, which compared to mainland Japan is still a, a small island. They lost 20,000 people, lost, I mean, dead. Tens of thousands more were injured, maimed. They lost tens of thousands of people to get these small islands. Okinawa took more than two months to get. So they, it would be a war that would be long and very, very bloody. Not to mention how many the Japanese, how many people the Japanese would uh, would lose. So it's very interesting that the people who are telling us that it was dropping the bomb was uh, cruel to the Japanese. They don't tell us what would be the number of, the, of fatalities for the Japanese themselves if the other uh, routes would be followed, like uh, starving them or the land invasion. Of course, when it comes to the choice of the United States, their main concern should be, like, how can I save more of my soldiers? But it's very interesting that the revisionists don't even follow the moral, uh, the moral uh, possible repercussions of their own uh, choices, of their own uh, suggestions. 
So they say, for example, that uh, we know that in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we had, uh, let's say, 150, 200,000 people dead. How many Japanese would die in the case of land invasion? Probably more than a million. So no matter from what point of view you examine the issue, it looks like the drop of the bomb was the right choice. And definitely it was the moral choice for a president of the United States who would say, my number one concern is to win fast and to make sure that I lose as few as many of my soldiers and also to make sure that I save my soldiers who are, POD, who are prisoners of war and have suffered for all these year unspeakable horrors. Yeah, I think it's clear that it's not any kind of genuine compassion for uh, the Japanese that motivates these critics. It's it's hatred of American foreign policy, and this is one excuse they can use to to criticize it. Um, let's before we get to the question of why should a president care most about his own uh, citizens, let's let's tackle just one last one of these revisionist theories, and that's the idea that the only reason that we dropped the bomb. Uh, was to deter the Soviets in the post-war order. I know you have some choice words for this this particular theory, Nikos. Yeah, that's my favorite uh, conspiracy theory because it's it's historically laughable. So the idea is to to so that people understand. The idea is that Truman decided to drop the bomb to scare Stalin, to scare Soviet Union, or to deter them. And the question is to deter them from what exactly? The, first of all, Stalin knew about the bomb before Truman himself. That's, that's quite a historical joke. Through his spies, Stalin knew about the bomb before Truman, because when Truman was vice president, his knowledge about the details of the bomb came later, FDR informed him later, than when Stalin already knew about the bomb. But that's a different uh, discussion. So did the bomb, quote, deter Soviet Union? From 1946 till 1949, when the Soviet Union had their first nuclear test, at the time where the United States has an atomic monopoly, they were the only country that have an, an atomic bomb, Soviet Union had its biggest tri geopolitical triumphs. The Soviet Union from 1946 to 1949 established their position in half of Europe, to put it simply. This is the time when Soviet Union gets more involved in, in situations like the Greek Civil War, or even they have an eye on Turkey, and most importantly, this is the time that Soviet influence, among other factors, makes sure that China becomes a communist country, which means at that time an ally of the Soviet Union. So how can it be that the nuclear bomb supposedly scared or deterred Stalin when Stalin has his biggest geopolitical triumphs during that same time of the American monopoly on the nuclear bomb? And one more thing, we know that Truman did not want to uh, do a, a, a diplomatically bully, to put it this way, Stalin with a bomb. How do we know this? We know this, one, from his actual behavior, but also we have access to his inner thoughts, let's say, through his diary, where he reflects that, well, I view the Soviet Union as a, you know, as an ally. They've always been our allies. And you, you, the, the American leadership at that time does not really understand the essence of Soviet Union and the essence of, uh, of Stalin. So no, the United States did not drop the bomb to quote, deter Soviet Union, because as we saw later, 
they did nothing of the kind. There was no deterrence. This was the golden era of Soviet expansionism. Yeah, and I think an important point to add here, I think yours is, is the fundamental because it, it just it exposes uh, the, the complete lack of concern for the facts that this theory is based on. But aside from that, I like to think, even if it were true that in a moment of clarity, uh, Truman decided maybe he should worry about the Soviets, because I think I take it your point is that he wasn't doing it very much. Even if in a moment of clarity he did, that would have been a moment of clarity. That would have been a good thing to do. I mean, the Soviets, as you point out, wreaked havoc throughout half of Europe and much of Asia, enslaved millions of people, killed millions of people because of it. We know that they had plans to invade Japan. We know that they were going to try to occupy the island of Hokkaido. Uh, so what we would have had if they hadn't been deterred would have been another North Korea, South Korea situation uh, in Japan, possibly another war with this fighting the you know proxies of the Soviets, uh, oppressing half of Japan, enslaving half of Japan. Is this really what the critics would wanted, would have wanted the Soviets to do, and would have wanted us to have to deal with in addition to all the other Soviet threats that we were dealing with during the Cold War? I mean, I think that point right there really brings out their motivation. It's a it's a kind of uh, sympathetic to Soviet communism motivation that's at the heart of this theory. And if, on the other hand, you are on the premise, no, the purpose of a foreign policy, of a, of a free nation's foreign policy, is to defend the rights and freedoms and lives of its citizens, then you will not only defeat the immediate aggressor in a war, in a war like Japan, but you will also take whatever steps are necessary in order to safeguard peace in the future, uh, especially when you know, as uh, on some level, many American allied generals must have known that they had made a deal with the devil when they allied with the Soviets during the war and uh, needed to clean up their mess. Uh, but like I say, like you said, I, I doubt that that was really uh, on their minds when they were making this decision. The primary thing on their minds was saving the lives of American soldiers who would have died in droves in the invasion of Japan. And so now we get to the, I think, the fundamental moral question, because I think there are people in our audience who, when they hear uh, that uh, the primary purpose of a foreign policy and of a war is to defend your own citizens, uh, they will think uh, either that this is uh, just morally atrocious on its face, or uh, at, at the very least, questionable kind of utilitarian uh, defense uh, of of the war. So Nikos, we should we should get into uh, the the moral question here, uh, because uh, I know right. you have some things. You so, want to say, and I have some. Yeah, so the actually the moral question has to do with. Who, first of all, do you have a right when you do you have a right to self-defense and what does this right entail? And the second question is, when you have a right to self-defense, who should be your uh, target? So does it mean, for example, that your self-defense entails you to risk the death or actually kill civilians? So, Ben, 
why don't you start with this? This is the philosophical uh, heavy lifting. So you're the guy for that. Yeah, I mean, I think the fundamental point is that individuals have a right to their own lives. And that entails they have a right to defend their lives. That's the right to self-defense. I think most people on some level grasp that and recognize that. But it has, impl it has important implications for foreign policy. Governments have don't have the right to do anything that individuals don't have the right to delegate to them to do. And the fundamental purpose of government is to protect individual rights, including the right to the self-defense of the citizens. That's in fact the primary thing that individuals delegate to governments uh, by virtue of setting up a government and coming out of uh, anarchy in the first place. The idea is you want someone to protect your rights. And of course, you retain a right to self-defense in emergency situations, but the, the primary job of a, of a police force or a military is to protect its citizens. And that includes, by the way, the rights of the soldiers. And the important thing is that this right is not abdicated simply because innocent people might be killed in the process of defending your own life. If they were, or rather if it were simply because of that, it would not really be a right to self-defense. It would be some kind of permission granted by the accidental presence or absence of innocents who are in the way. And to bring this out in a, in a dramatic way, we're, we're gonna start by playing one of three clips we have brought for you today uh, from Ayn Rand herself, who had a very definitive position on this question. And so let's start by listening to what she had to say in her Fort Hall Forum talk in 1976 uh, in response to the question that someone had asked her. Here she's, it's a, it's a question about the Soviet Union. Assume the Soviet Union started a war of aggression. Assume also that within the Soviet Union, there are individuals opposed to communism. How do you handle this conflict? Obviously this isn't about Japan, but the principle she's invoking is analogous uh, and applicable to the situation. So let's hear this first clip. The idea that an individual inside a country can be made secure from the social system under which he lives and which he accepts, willingly or unwillingly, even if he's fighting it, he still accepts he hasn't left the country. The idea is that others should respect that man's right and collapse to aggression themselves. In other words, not be goddamn pacifist uh, who would not fight even when attacked because they might kill innocent people. Look, if this were so, nobody would have to be concerned about his country's political system. If you could have a life independent of the system, which other countries and other nations respected so that you wouldn't be drawn into an unjust war if you're an innocent victim. If that were so, we would not need to be concerned about politics. Why is it important to be concerned about politics? Why should we care about having the right social system? Because our lives are dependent on it. Because those systems, good or bad, are established in our name and we bear the responsibility. So that the Soviet citizens who are innocent, I hope someday will be destroyed in a proper war along with the guilty. There aren't very many innocent ones. And they're not in the big cities. They're mainly in concentration camps. But right or wrong, 
nobody must put up with aggression and surrender his right of self-defense for fear of hurting somebody else, guilty or innocent. When someone comes at you with a gun, if you have one ounce of self-esteem, you will answer him by force, never mind who he is or who is behind him, if he is attacking you because he's out to destroy you, and this is what you owe to the sanctity of your own life, if you have self-esteem. Uh, so Ben, there are powerful answers. Powerful answer, but there are two things here that need to be clarified for people to get. The first is that many people who live in dictatorships, at least implicitly, contribute to this dictatorship. The example in Japan would be, for example, the people in Nagasaki who work in the military factories. Now, do these people have the same uh, responsibility as the emperor? They contribute, maybe no, but they contribute to the war effort. So they create the bombs that are killing your soldiers or the bombs that will be unleashed in your civilians. There's no question that if Japan could access American civilians, they would, they would do it. But then the question becomes, what about the people who are actively opposed to the regime? And the way I view this is that the death of these people would be sad, but then the responsibility is not on you. In the same way that if an attacker grabs a civilian and put them as human shield and shoots you, either you say, okay, I will die because I don't want to shoot uh, the attacker, in which case it's self-sacrifice, or you shoot back and you recognize that the responsibility lies with the person who is shooting you and is grabbing the civilian and is putting them in front of them. This is why she says that even the people in the gulag, their death is not on someone who would fight back. Their death would be in the hands, in her example, of the Soviet aggressors. In our example, what about political prisoners in Japan? Well, hopefully these people wouldn't die. If they die, their moral responsibility rise, lies with the Japanese, with Imperial Japan, with the emperor. Do I get this right? Yes, I think so. And I want to come back to questions about responsibility uh, in a moment. But I, I, I want to also highlight a few other things that came out in that same conversation. Uh, one is the point about the, especially the point about self-esteem and how if you believe in the right to self-defense and if you have an ounce of self-esteem, self then your life is not does not suddenly become less important simply because someone else's uh, is is threatened through no fault of your own. That's the fault of the aggressor. And here you can tie this back to some of the historical material that we discussed. The Americans who were fighting this war at the time did not share, and I believe were right not to share the self-sacrificial morality of the kamikaze pilots. The kamikazes were the ones who were willing to lay down their lives because it was demanded by another. Uh, the, Jap the Americans did not understand this philosophy and rightly so. They didn't live to die. They were fighting to live. Uh, and they, they achieved it. They, they were able to uh, defeat Japan and 
in probably the only case in history where there was an occupation of a foreign power, not a single American soldier died. And most importantly, it's been 80 years since the war. Japan has not reemerged as a threat. They have emerged as an as a productive and peaceful ally, you know, quite unlike what happened after World War One, where uh, where G Germany, because they did not they because they were not forced into an unconditional surrender, did live to fight again and to threaten us with an even greater offense. Japan just was the unambiguous aggressor. Uh, in in World War II, and we've we've talked about different ways it it posed a threat. The right to self defense includes the right to resist an aggressor, to defeat an aggressor, and it's not just for the sake of the citizens living at home. It's also for the sake of the soldiers fighting the battle, who are just as much American citizens, have just as much of a right to self defense. Many of them were draftees, and they shouldn't have been. It, to, to, to force them to die is to add insult to the injury of the draft. And uh, so, I, I mean, I think Ayn Rand's analysis here is, is crystal clear and incisive and, and cuts to the, the core issue of what this dispute and is about, because the people who want, wanted us to not drop the bomb simply don't believe in the right to self-defense. And here, let me try to dramatize it. First of all, let me say one thing. I totally get why Oppenheimer would have at least a struggle in his conscience. Now, it's not easy knowing that your decision has led to hundreds of thousands of people to die. This is, and feeling sorry about th those people who would be innocent is understandable. This is completely different from having the moral courage to say, and yet I did the right thing. So your moral compass could get to the point that, yes, it's, it's a tragedy that many people who the war wasn't their fault and maybe they didn't like it die. And same to the aggressors, the Japanese who started this war. And at the same time, I did the right thing. So no one is saying that, uh, you know, it's a very, you know, it's a, it's uh, like no one cares that hundreds of thousands of people have died. The question here is who was to blame? And a second, and a second issue, imagine you are the mother of a dead soldier who died because you didn't push that button. And you said, uh, we will do a land invasion or we will wait uh, for the Japanese to starve and then the POWs die. Imagine if you would face Truman and you knew that Truman would have saved your son, the American soldier, who he had the duty to defend, but he didn't do it because his moral code told him it's better for us to suffer rather than for the enemy to suffer, despite the fact that the enemy has started the war. So I think Concretizing like that shows how this moral code that says, yeah, it's better for us to suffer rather than the others, the moral code of self-sacrifice is not only unjust, it's actually revolting if you concretize it, not to the level of abstract ideas, but to the level of an individual soldier, even one soldier losing their life. But Ben, I have one more question for you. A criticism that we get sometimes is that, well, you people are supposed to be individualist, but isn't this collectivism putting together all the civilians, innocents, not innocents, people who are literally in prison because they're dissidents, for example. Why do you put all these together as, yeah, okay, it's, uh, it's, it's acceptable if you perish when we drop the bomb? So is it collectivism to view in the same way the Japanese dissident who is in the prisons of uh, the secret police, the KPTI, with 
the let's say the person who is an excited uh, nationalist and ready to become a kamikaze i think it's a fair question for someone who's legitimately confused by this this issue though i don't know that most of the people who raise the question are um here's a way to think about this and there's a number of things to say here but if your idea is that yes there's a right to self-defense but you're only allowed or permitted to exercise it when you can do so knowing you're not going to uh, hurt any kind of allegedly innocent civilians. Think about what that means for a moment. Think about, for instance, the fact that most of the Japanese military were draftees. Okay, so they didn't really volunteer to fight. They were forced to fight. Uh, so the, in, a, in, an important, in an important way, uh, they were innocent victims as well, the soldiers. So should they have been spared too in a war like, like World War II? Which mean, so you can only target the soldiers who signed up and who were you know, writing texts in support of the war. Uh, what, about, what about the people who are working at the munitions factories who are not soldiers but are civilians? Uh, they just want to have a job, but of course what they're doing is manufacturing tools of killing that the Japanese soldiers, uh, including the, the guilty and innocent ones, are using to kill Americans. The point here is that, especially in a modern war against a statist rival, and most aggressors, probably all aggressors in unjust wars, are statists who draft their citizens and who mobilize the entire economy for the sake of fighting the war, in modern warfare of this type, there is no line you can draw between quote-unquote military and quote-unquote civilian targets. They're all entangled. And therefore, you cannot fight such a war. You cannot fight a war of self-defense against such a statist aggressor uh, if, if the idea is you should do something to uh, distinguish military and civilian targets uh, that's even just on the assumption that the civilians are innocent, which is a question that we'll get to uh, later. But it, you can't fight that war. And if you can't fight that war on that premise, it means it, what it means, in fact, in practice is you have no right self, to self-defense. And so the person who's asking this question thinks that they believe in the right to self-defense, but they believe in it in a floating way that's completely detached from the reality of, of actual warfare. And... Uh, Think about what that means then. It means that Pearl Harbor happens. You, you basically have to let the Japanese keep doing what they're doing because there might be some drafty soldiers in there. You know there are. They're innocent. You can't hurt them. And so you've got to sit back and take it. And that's, that's morally obscene. And it, it means a complete abdication of the right to self-defense, contrary to, I think, the assumption of the people who are often asking this question. So shall we also tackle now the other difficult question, which is how innocent is the civilian? Because even I am uh, a bit confused with this. So I can imagine that, uh, well, trying to calculate how many people are dissidents or how many people, I, I can think that a significant amount of, uh, of people don't actively support it, let's say, 
Soviet Union. How do we know? We found out in 1989. They're the people who participated in mobilizations, uh, the Baltic Wall that its anniversary was soon, the people who were holding hands around. Uh, so we know that a lot of people did not, not only did not support the regime, but in the first chance, they stood up against it. So what is the then the moral status of the of the average, let's say, Joe, uh, the average Joe in a dictatorship? Are should we assume that the average person is innocent? Yeah, this is an important question because when I was saying before, I was saying allegedly innocent, and there was a reason for that. And Ayn Rand had a controversial view on this subject, and we're going to go a little bit out of order for the clips we wanted to play. Um, so I want to cue up clip number one at this point, but. What you're going to hear her say in this next clip is that, yeah, there's a there is a sense in which there are individual there are innocent people in uh, aggressor nations uh, in the sense that they are not, let's say, actively working for the aggressor government. They're not actively propagandizing on behalf of the war. But there's a broader sense in which they are not that at least many of them are not innocent. There's a broader sense in which they are responsible for uh, what their government is doing. And in this clip uh, from the, the Ford Hall Forum in 1972, which was Ayn Rand's talk, A Nation's Unity, Ayn Rand comments on this issue. Why do you think people should be concerned about the nature of their government? Certainly the majority in any country at war is innocent. But if by neglect, ignorance, or helplessness, they couldn't uh, overturn or choose a, a bad government and choose a better one, then they have to pay the price for the sins of their government, as all of us are paying for the sins of ours. That's why we have to be interested in the philosophy of government and in seeing to the extent we can, seeing to it that we have a good government, because a government is not an independent entity. It's supposed to represent the people of a nation. If some people put up with Soviet uh, dictatorship, not all of them, you know, but some do as they did in Germany, they deserve whatever their government deserves. There is no innocent people in war. The only thing to be concerned with is who started that war. And once you can establish that it's a given country, there is no such thing as consideration for the rights of that country because it has initiated the use of force and therefore steps outside the principle of rights. So this reminds I me, Ben, the saying that says you might not care about politics, but politics cares about you, that uh, what your government does has, a, has an effect has an effect on you. But this raises the question, what if you cannot really resist that government? So, for example, these days, we know that there are regimes, North Korea is the obvious example, where any dissent has an effect on you, then there's collective responsibility for your family, and so on. But then I assume we fall back to the previous discussion, which is that, well, if such innocents die, this is very unfortunate, but it's not on you. It's on the, it's on the government who initiated. Anyway, so what what are your thoughts then on the on the average citizen in time of war on the on the side of the aggressor? Yeah, this is this is why it's, I think it's important to stress there's 
there's a probably a couple of different senses of innocence uh, being bandied about here. One is the sense, the more direct sense in which, like if you have not actually volunteered to support the crimes that are being committed, you are innocent. And if you, uh, even especially if you oppose the regime, you are innocent in that sense. But look, it's often the case, uh, even in normal non-emergency kinds of contexts, that we are held responsible for things that we did not directly choose. If you get into a car accident where it's an accident, that means it wasn't on purpose. You didn't mean to destroy this other person's car, but you made a mistake uh, and uh, you know, or just had an oversight. And as a result, you're held responsible for the damages. Uh, there's a broader sense of responsibility here that is the basis of our legal system. And you may not, you may, you may not want to be supporting uh, this government with your labor, uh, with your very presence uh, as, as, a, as, a, as an individual in this city who's living and working there. Uh, but you are, and it's, it's not your fault. Uh, and it's a tragedy if because of the war you die. But uh, it, one point that, that Ayn Rand often makes in, in these comments is that if you really are innocent, and if you really do oppose this government, you will welcome the, the, the foreign nation that is fighting a war of self-defense to destroy the aggressor government. And in fact, in history, this has been the case. Like the free French forces under de Gaulle uh, during World War II, who were obviously uh, opposed to the Nazi, Nazi regime, didn't say, let's not do the D-Day invasion because we might destroy, we might kill some innocent French people. They were in fact participating uh, in the D-Day invasion and fired on their own country because they knew that it was the only way uh, to defeat the Nazi occupiers, knowing the tragedy that would result when innocent people died. But yes, Nikos, your point, and I think Ayn Rand's point is that the tragedy and the injustice there are on behalf of the aggressors. They're, they're the fault of the Nazis, they're the fault of the Japanese, uh, and not the fault of those who are exercising their righteous right of self-defense. Um, before we wrap up, and I wanna make sure we, we hit one last issue, uh, which is related to one last clip that I, I wanna make sure we play. And, and this is the question of, is the position that we are arguing for here simply that if some uh, innocent citizens happen to die uh, accidentally because of uh, a war of self-defense, that's okay, that's the fault of the aggressor, or is it more than that? Because there are people who will say, who will say yes, if it wasn't your primary intention uh, to do so, then it's not your fault. If it's an accidental side effect, it's not your fault. But you shouldn't target uh, citizens, uh, civilians. And it's relevant to the debate about Hiroshima and Nagasaki because, and not just for that, but the firebombing of uh, Dresden and Hamburg during World War II, it is arguable probably that they were targeted because of their large civilian populations, not only because of their military significance. And this was part of the calculation to break the will of these uh, enemy regimes. And I want to now share one final clip with you all from Ayn Rand. And this is a, this is a, a, a clip we have not previously released. 
not previously part of any Q&A session. This is taken from a workshop, a private workshop she did in 1970 on ethics and politics. And this question of targeting uh, enemy civilians comes up and hear what she have to say, has to say. You may have to turn the volume up a bit for this one at home. So it's such a thing as don't bombard hospitals. Well, it's valid if both sides see an advantage in it. But the idea don't murder women and children, I don't think is particularly relevant if you're murdering men. What's the difference? And it's demonstrating in Vietnam all the time because women and children are right there with the uh, uh, guerrillas. How are you going to make a distinction? Uh, if it is tactically necessary to bomb civilians during a war, you have to. More than that, it's your moral duty to do so. Because otherwise, what are you doing? Uh, kind of a medieval, you know, uh, tournament where people are dying while waving ladies' handkerchiefs. There is not, no laws can hold, nothing can hold, no morality can hold against the state of war. And uh, if it's a, uh, in a war, one party is the aggressor, anything that the other party does is morally justified. It was an act of self-defense. And the total annihilation of the aggressor is proper. Except for the fact that you have to be damn sure that you're not both at fault, which is sometimes the case. But in most wars, it's always the more controlled countries that attacks the freer. So what does he do? What does he say at the end, Ben? Just make sure you are not. Make sure you're not both at fault for the conflict. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So that, that's I wanted to make. It's to, not usually the case. Yeah, I wanted to make this to make this clear that what runs this year is by no means like a green light for like a wheel of power. Like I will submit everyone because I can. So let's keep this context. One, we're talking about defensive wars. So. United States were attacked by Japan. And also, I think it goes without saying, we are talking about here things that are necessary. For example, if once the United States won the war, they would go in a rampage of rape, torture, like other parts of uh, World War II did, then this would not be justifiable because you're not anymore in a war situation. I remember having a discussion with an objectivist intellectual about the issue, the very other very difficult issue of torture. And he said something that really stuck with me. He said, there is a time that, let's say the ticking bomb example, that you might have, that you have to, let's say you have to do it. That's the only choice. Otherwise, a bus of children is going to be blown up. It's also important how you do it. In terms of, if you glow from satisfaction, something is very, very wrong with you. If you see the suffering and you're, you're like getting excited with it, something is really, really wrong with you. So this is by no means a call to, oh, I have the power, therefore my moral compass is broken, I can do whatever I want. Again, we're talking about a defensive war and things that you deem necessary to win the war. So I just want to make this clarification at the end because it's very easy in this discussion for someone to lose the context and say, okay, this is like a subjectivist will to power kind of a might makes right uh, argument. 
Yeah, I don't think that, uh, I mean, when you see the Oppenheimer movie, the scene that you spoke of, Nikos, uh, where his guilt is coming out the most, is a scene where he's trying to give a speech celebrating their achievement, but he's haunted by the images of charred Japanese corpses. And like, I don't think when you think about that situation, you should, it's not a happy situation to think about. Like there, it was, it was a, a horrific thing that happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and it should not give you warm and fuzzy feelings. But the decision that Truman had to make was a solemn and necessary one. I don't think that Truman felt giddy about it. I think that I think that he was uh, he recognized the weight of history on him and made the decision that he knew was right. But it's not something to get happy about. What we should right. be grateful for, though, is that he uh, is that he made the decision that the, the the American military followed his orders, knowing that it was necessary to save thousands of American lives, and uh, that it would guarantee peace uh, for decades and decades to come, so that that none of their uh, none of their children would would have to fight wars like this again. And we're able to sit here and have this conversation. Uh, in in a high degree of comfort because of that i mean i often i often reflect on the fact that my my father my grandparents uncles were all uh involved in the war in the military some in the nuclear weapons program and i i i haven't had to i'm sorry i get i get emotional about this because i haven't had to do that and some people would criticize us for that, saying, oh, you don't, you can sit there in your comfortable position. Well, but that's what I ought to be able to do. And right. that's what anyone ought to be able to do. Right. And otherwise, you have the. Our forefathers did it. Yeah. That's the morality of life. The morality of life is to be lived. Otherwise, you fall into the imperial Japan morality, which is morality is to die with glory for the for the emperor before our outro let me uh, let me recognize uh, let me actually mention some uh, of our super chatters a big thank you to jonathan for your contribution it's highly appreciated germany with the atom bomb well that's simple because germany was defeated let's say on 9th of may or and actually the bomb was developed uh, and tested later and then another question, could it be that there was, I'm paraphrasing the question, uh, there was like a tribal racist premise in wanting to bring destruction to Japan? The answer is no. How do we know? We know from the later occupation to Japan. I don't think there was any vindictiveness, particularly if you think about what the Japanese had done to the prisoners of war or to the nations they subjugated. So... No, I don't buy the argument that says that we dropped the bond to the Japanese because they were of a different race and therefore we saw them as a subhuman or something. Actually, it was the Japanese who had a very, very racist ideology introduced to the children already from school. And this has to do with the horrific things they did to China. Again, only if you have the stomach, 
go read a book called The Rape of Nanking. And yeah, but if you lose sleep, don't don't blame me. Anyway, Ben, any final any final thoughts? Yeah, well, we should wrap up with a few lessons. Uh, and I think there are three, and we can we can do most of these quickly. One is this has obvious dramatic implications for the current conduct of our foreign policy. Because the last few wars that our country, that the United States has fought, have been hampered by the same kind of uh, abdication of the belief in the right to self-defense that, that mobilize and motivate these kinds of criticisms of, of the atomic bomb. The concern for uh, killing innocent civilians that is elevated above the right to self-defense, including of our own troops, who have been hamstrung, who've been made to deal with rules of engagement that make it impossible for them to win a war. And as a result, we have lost wars. We lost the war in Afghanistan. We arguably lost the war in Iraq. So that's one. A second is one that Ayn Rand brings out regularly in her comments that we've been listening to today. And that's that uh, citizens have a reason to care about what happens to their government. Because if indeed, and people were asking about this, I saw in the chat, what happens if someone fights a war of, uh, what happens if the United States uh, uh, aggresses? Does that mean that other countries have the right to bomb us? It sure as hell does mean they do. And that's why we should care about whether or not our government is a status collectivist regime that launches wars of aggression. It's why it, politics is important. It's why the Ayn Rand Institute is unflinching uh, in its condemnation of statists and collectivists on both sides of the political spectrum. It matters. And the third, and I think that this is important to end with because again, talking about the atomic bomb is, it, it, it's not a, I mean, this is a serious topic and it's not to be treated lightly. Uh, and Ayn Rand was writing about this in a number of places in the 1960s when the peace movement was beginning to become prominent. And she wrote a, an article called The Roots of War, where she opens by, well, let's, let's show you uh, some of the passages. She says, it's true that nuclear weapons have made wars too horrible to contemplate. But it makes no difference to a man whether he's killed by a nuclear bomb or a dynamite bomb or an old-fashioned club, nor does the number of other victims or the scale of the destruction make any difference to him. Skipping a bit. If nuclear weapons are a dreadful threat and mankind cannot afford war any longer, then mankind cannot afford statism any longer. Let no man of goodwill take it upon his conscience to advocate the rule of force outside or inside his own country. Let all those who are actually concerned with peace uh, those who do love man and do care about his survival realize that if war is ever to be outlawed, it is the use of force that has to be outlawed. So that's the principle that should guide us when we're deciding what kinds of governments should we support, what kinds of governments should we oppose. If you're concerned about the nuclear bomb, if you think it's too horrific to be used, you don't want to put it into the hands of a government like Nazi Germany's or Imperial Japan's or many of the totalitarian governments in foreign countries today, or in the hands of uh, leaders in the United, certain leaders in the United States today, who I think would push us closer 
in the direction of statism and collectivism. Right. So, people, if you appreciate what you are, what this discussion, and you want to, you're curious about finding out more. Here are some further sources. So, check out. Uh, we discussed about the issue of who is innocent in a war. There's a small but very enlightening article by our colleague on Cargata called "Innocence in War," which is reprinting in the book "Failing to Confront Islamic." totalitarianism. Also, on the issue of what does it mean to win a war? What does it mean to end a war decisively by a victory that settles the issue? Uh, we would recommend the book by the late John David Lewis, Nothing Less Than Victory, Decisive Wars and the Lessons of History. By the way, the book has a whole chapter on Imperial Japan and how the war on Imperial Japan ended. It's one of the case studies uh, in the book. Now, excellent chapter. Excellent chapter. Yes. Uh, do we also have a the, we recently new ideal? Uh, our uh, online publication released an article about at some point Ayn Rand worked on the prospect of releasing a movie about uh, the Manhattan Project, and she had this. She had that. She actually met Oppenheimer, and there was a, a good, uh, interesting energy between them. So. You can find the article Rand and Oppenheimer, the atomic bomb movie that wasn't. Imagine the cinematography of Nolan with someone who had a better moral compass than whoever did the current Oppenheimer, uh, Oppenheimer movie. So you can find it in, uh, in our online publication, The New Ideal. Also, next week, we will have the topic on Biden's Iran hostage release deal. And this will be with... Uh, our colleagues Ilan Giurno and Onkar Gate. Also, if you have any questions or if you have any suggestions for future shows, things that you want to see us discuss, drop us an email. You will see our email here at newideal, newideal at einrand.org. Read all your emails. Sometimes we reply. We take your uh, proposals into considerations. Also, from time to time, we do Q&A sessions where you can ask any question about philosophy. So again, if you have any questions, newideal at einrand.org. So if you enjoyed today's podcast, again, it was a very difficult uh, topic. If you appreciate the work that we do, consider supporting us. The simplest way, spread the word, like, share, boost the, boost the algorithm. And also, feel free to comment, feel free to enter the discussion. We will read your comments and uh, we might get the discussion going on YouTube. So that was all for today. Thank you very much, Ben. I should Many mention thanks. just real quick, Nikos, that, that episode that's coming up next week on the Iran hostage deal, a new Iran hostage deal. Uh, th this is exactly what I was talking about a few moments ago with regard to implications for current foreign policy. We, we, are, we are coddling the Iranian regime for fear of exercising our actual right to self-defense. And yeah, a regime with many similarities, a regime with many similarities to Imperial Japan when it comes to, to like the, the worship of, of death. But anyway, all this next week. Thank you very much and all the best. Bye-bye. Thanks, Nikos. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, 
and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.